Welcome to PRISM Presents. We're your hosts, Sophia Osborne and Vivian Lee, and you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded, ancestral, and traditional land of the Musqueam peoples on the Vancouver UBC campus. We're excited to be here today for our live episode of PRISM Presents, a radio show dedicated to bringing you readings and conversations with writers from around the world. If you haven't heard of PRISM International, we're a quarterly literary magazine based on the UBC campus, and our mandate is to publish the best in contemporary writing and translation from Canada and from around the world. For today's episode, we're joined live in the studio by Jess Goldman and RJ McDaniel, two of our fellow MFA creative writing students here at UBC. I am such a fan of both of their work and have had the honor of being in classes with both of them, so I'm really excited for this conversation today. So am I. Without further ado, let's get into it. Jess, do you want to start by introducing yourself? Sure. Um, Yeah, my name is Jess Goldman, and um, yeah, I mostly write fiction, but I have currently been um, diving into comics, and it's like really scary and intimidating, but also uh, incredible because I'm I'm a total novice at it. and yeah, I also, I guess like a more random fact about me is I, I also like uh, to make puppets and puppeteer. <laughs> Love that. And RJ? I'm RJ McDaniel. Um, I have published a lot, a lot of nonfiction. But lately in the past couple of years, I've kind of been focusing on fiction. But I'm also a dabbler. So I really enjoy doing comics. I have enjoyed doing songwriting in my time in the program. Uh, basically, in the program, I'm trying to stay away from doing fiction because that's what takes up most of the rest of my headspace. And I am a big bird enjoyer, if for any bird enjoyers out there listening. And I was really thrilled the other day to see a long-tailed duck off Stanley Park. Oh, yeah. <laughs> love that. Yeah, so before we get into our discussion today, we would love to hear a bit of both of your work. And we'll have Jess go first here. But a quick content warning for listeners that this piece that Jess is going to read contains talks about sexuality and also lots of dildos, and it might not be a good fit for younger (laughs) listeners. So maybe come back in five minutes uh, for the discussion. But yeah, do you want to take it away, Jess? Sure. Um, yeah, so so this piece was um, published in the summer issue, I believe, of, of Maison Oeuvre this uh, past year, 2022. And um, it's called After Bubi. And just so everybody knows, Bubi is a Jewish word or Yiddish word for, for grandmother. I've been thinking about my Bubi's body, that is, her lust. When my aunt Sandra was clearing out my Bubi's drawers, she found a dildo. She asked the family if any of us wanted it. We all said no. I declined out of some knee-jerk reaction to the notion of inheriting any dead person's, let alone my boobies, sex toy. Now, her dildo sits in a garbage dump somewhere, and I regret not saying yes. It seemed fitting that my aunt had found it. Sandra was the first person to tell me, with utter frankness, what a blowjob was. I was about 12 at the time. We were at my Bubby and Zadie's rental home in Boynton Beach, Florida, getting ready to go to the pool. Within the salmon pink walls of the guest room, I remember feeling titillated, nervous, and a little depraved. 
It was the perfect environment to learn this life lesson. Florida itself is a little titillating, nerve-wracking, and depraved. Later, I wanted to at least know what my boobies dildo looked like. So, over the phone, Sandra described it to me. It was translucent and magenta, filled with tiny cream-colored balls not unlike pearls, and equipped with bunny ears and a shaft that rotated to three speeds. I would expect nothing less from my boobie. The woman dressed in Florida chic and wouldn't be caught dead in any shirt that wasn't covered in rhinestones or some sort of sequin. Picturing this disembodied body part, this fabulous rubber schlong, her body comes pulsing back to life, warm, wanting, alive. You couldn't find a more powerful tool for a seance. If I had this dildo now, I would place it on an altar and hope that her ghost wraps her legs, now free of all their pain, around it. But I don't have it, and I wonder how to honor her spirit, to summon her chutzpah, her steel will laugh, her vitality for life, through chronic pain and a ruptured colon and an induced coma and a thousand back surgeries. For all the pain she experienced in life, I am so glad she also had pleasure. I have never been hornier than I was during the weeks after my boobie's death. All I wanted at the time was to be domed. I have never been more of a body, and I was burning, burning, burning for it. People don't tell you that wild horniness can be one of the side effects of grief. But lust was the only feeling that could come close to matching my sense of loss or lift me out of grief's lethargic pull. I guess we don't really know how to grieve, let alone talk about it. We're squeamish about death. Much like the way we treat sex, we have all sorts of euphemisms to avoid addressing it directly. She's passed on. She's resting in peace. She's in a better place. She's kicked the bucket. How I wish there was a word with the equivalent force of cunt for death. Only a word like that could truly capture the viscerality of loss and the mourning that accompanies it. The taboo element of lust makes desire a perfect vehicle for grief. Its shock value, its resistance to rationality. Death is shocking and absurd, but euphemisms seek to tamp down the shock, to make death quaint and quiet and mundane, to tell death to shut up. Euphemizing is a way to control the world's chaos, but we have as little control over what we desire as we do over when we die. Coming can be corpse cosplay, a kind of playing dead, a way to understand what it means to be scooped up wholly by another force. When people die, maybe it's not only their souls that are released back into the world, but their lust too. Imagine all that lust out there, licking the wind, rattling fruit from the trees, making the ocean wave, stirring the soup pot. When my booby died, did her lust enter me? <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Thank you so much, Jess. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank honestly, you. that like um, the two sides of pleasure and death are were very visceral in the piece. So Thank you. you should check it out if you guys haven't <laughs> yet to our live and um, online listeners. Yeah. Jess, do you want to say where people can find that piece? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was published in Maison of Summer Issue. So you can find that online on their website. Um, and yeah, I guess you can follow me in the work that I do at, uh, on Instagram at Yentl the writer. Amazing. Perfect. Um, and RJ, could you share a reading for us? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Sorry about that. So this is a piece that I actually wrote quite a while ago, almost two years ago now. It was published March 2nd, 2021, um, at fangraphs.com, which is a baseball analytics website that I worked for for several years um, and wrote for quite a bit. Um, and as I said, I published a lot of nonfiction 
in my time. And most of it was about baseball, which is something that people find surprising when they meet me. So I thought I would share one of my baseball pieces because I think it would be nice for everyone to kind of get what I was doing and where I was coming from. And this is one of my favorite things I wrote in my last year working. Under the low blue-gray sky in Jupiter, the clouds rolling in low from the sea, the people crowd in the seats, white hats and dark sunglasses on, in the annual ritual of anticipation. The latest in inoffensive country pop blaring over the speakers, the salty food spilling onto the ground. With handheld video cameras, grainy images crisscrossed by thick netting, they zoom in on the players they're here to watch. The classic red of the jerseys is loud against the muted landscape. It makes someone like the aging slugger, whom the camera follows with interest, look even bigger and more imposing than he is. And he is indeed imposing, much as he has been for the last decade, the Rawlings' big stick appearing in his hands to have all the heft of a piece of driftwood. He's 37 years old, with a right knee that's gone under the knife. For now, he will not run the bases, nor take the field. He glowers, alone, waiting for his one turn at the plate. In the rest of the dugout, the bustle. Big grins, pounding gloves. Last year, they lost the pennant. This year, they should make a run for it again. Squint and you'll see the catcher, who, during last year's chase, sliced his finger nearly off with a hunting knife. An injury, he assures everyone, will not affect his ability to throw this year. Watch carefully and you might catch a glimpse of the prospect. He doesn't look out of his depth. He's as solid as the slugger ever was. And his demeanor betrays no trepidation. He has only one professional season under his belt. When the slugger debuted almost 15 years ago, he was only a little kid. But he's here, and with a vacancy on the hot corner, he could make the team. It's a long shot, of course. Everyone says it's a long shot. It was a long shot for a 20-year-old in his first professional season to climb all the way to AAA by the year's end, too. But he did it. The chance may be small, but there's a chance. The slugger swings. A long, belabored swing, well behind the pitch, and the umpire's arm punches through the air. The inning is over. The music plays. He was like a rock, the team doctor says. He's talking about the prospect. Before a game was even played this spring, when players were reporting and getting their physicals done, they were talking about the prospect. There is such an incongruity between the reality of this young man and what one expects of a player only two years out of high school, and within that incongruity is the space for endless imagining. How quickly he rose in only a year. How quickly might he rise given another. It is spring and he is with the big league club a chance for fans to catch a glimpse, to stoke the fires of their imaginations before he returns, presumably, to the minors. The games don't count, but the visions they produce can endure through entire disappointing seasons. If the slugger continues to decline, if the catcher's near-severed finger hampers him, if they can't get anything out of third base, they can return, whenever they want, to the low clouds of a passing winter, to a promise of what soon could be. At Rogers Dean Stadium on the final day of February, the prospect stands at the plate. He launches a batting practice fastball clear out of the park, out of the purview even of the land owned by his team. The ball pounds against the window of another team's complex. The witnesses are astonished. The prospect is not. That was nothing, he says. When they turn the lights on and sell the tickets and start playing the real games, that's when it counts. Every few days, the reports come back. The prospect has homered again. The prospect was the offensive standout of yet another game. The weeks pass and the minor leaguers, the other young players, gradually leave the major league camp, but not him. He stays. 
Still now, with only two weeks to go until the start of the season. Two weeks ago, the manager asserted that the prospects still needed more time in the minors. But now his declarations are less sure. As long as he's here, he has a chance, he says on March 18th. On March 19th, an update after the prospect hits his third double in two days. He was one of the best players on the field today. Again. And on March 20th, somebody asked me why he wasn't playing more. I said, if I play him more, he's going to make the team. A few days later, with the prospect racking up even more extra base hits, as he even flashes leather in left field, saving a double with a diving catch, the manager elaborates on his previous point. What's the difference in reason and reality, he says after the day's scrimmage, answering a question with a question. The reality is he's playing like hell. The reason is that he probably would continue to do so if you keep playing him. So the key is to quit playing him. The prospect plays it cool. He says he can't answer the question of whether he should make the team. He defers to the experience of his manager and teammates. He expects to start the season in Memphis. He credits God for the blessings of his career so far. He's just trying his best, he says, to capture people's attention. That's where he is as spring wears on, as the hands on the clock turn to that moment when the lights turn on and the fans roar. Between reason and reality, a place so dangerous to the order of the team, to what's expected of a player this young and inexperienced, that his manager has resorted to keeping him off the field. It's the realm of imagination. With every day that passes in Jupiter, what is imagined of the prospect grows larger, brighter, impossible to ignore. Where might he go, him and the other prospects of this spring, the tall left-hander with Cleveland, the star from across the ocean? On March 28th, he launches a game-tying shot against the Braves over the scoreboard. Only a few more days now. He remains and remains still. The calendar flips to April, the time when it all counts approaches. What will end up being counted in that final reckoning? What is it possible to hope for? A pennant, a few pennants, a World Series even? 3,000 hits and 600 home runs? To survive every injury? To be 20 years later again in red, taking the field for another spring? To defy what is reasonable, what is realistic? When it counts, it really counts. When the curtain rises on the 2021 season, it rises on the last year for the aging slugger. It rises on the last year of a dynasty. And it rises on the prospect who, against all odds, made the team after all. He takes the field not in Jupiter anymore, but in Denver, high up in the air under the lights. And so it is marked in the record. Albert Pujols made his major league debut April 2nd, 2001. There is no end date just yet. The aging slugger swings his bat, and in the pale spring light, the music plays. Wow. Thank you so much. Sports. <laughs> Sports is beautiful. It's so beautiful. The story was really well written. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Well, I'm so excited to get into it and talk about writing with you all. But before we do, let's take a quick ad break. listening pleasure, please join me, Marguerite, Sundays at 9 a.m. for Classical Chaos, classical music from around the world, right here on CITR 101.9 FM, 
Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. We'll see you then. Looking to get a reliable and affordable used bike? Need a repair or service to your current ride? Come to the Bike Kitchen, UBC's full-service community bike shop, located in room 36 of the UBC Life Building. Our hours are Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. If you buy a bike from us, bring it back when you're done using it, and we'll give you half of your money back, as long as you took care of it. If it needs repairs, we'll split the cost with you. Yep, you heard us right. We'll give you crisp dollar bills for half the original price of any used bike that you buy from us. Minus the cost of repairs. For more information about our buyback policy and to stay up to date on any COVID-19 inspired changes, find us online at thebikekitchen.com. Do you want to change the state of the world? But instead you keep buying material goods to satisfy whatever desire you have in that very moment? Me too. But now you can do both! Brock Shop and Community Thrift is a local vintage shop that fulfills your 1970s all-chic fantasy while also supporting at-risk people through their compassionate and supportive work training program. All of their profits go to the PHS Community Services Society to support ongoing health care, harm reduction, and health promotion projects in Vancouver and Victoria. So stop by their two locations, Community Unisex on West Hastings or Community Frock Shop on Corral Street. And if you know any other local businesses that deserve recognition for their generous business practices or their contributions to the community, please DM us on Instagram at CITR and Discorder because we would love to spotlight them. Because hey, if you can't stop buying, you might as well start supporting. CITR is powered by Guayaquil Yerba Mate. Yerba Mate is a naturally caffeinated drink that comes in a variety of formats from loose leaf to cans to bottles. Yes, the yellow ones. Guayaquil Mate is all organic, non-GMO, and sure to make you come to life. Guayaquil is more than just a Yerba Mate brand. They're focused on personal, social, ecological, and cultural growth through their commitment to regenerative practices, which includes stewarding the South Atlantic rainforest and partnering with indigenous South American communities through the production of Yerba Mate. Visit guayaquil.com, G-U-A-Y-A-K-I.com to learn more and find this delicious drink near you. Or stop by CITR station on UBC campus for a free Yerba Mate can. You're listening to Prison Presents on CITR 101.9 FM. We're here with Jess Goldman and RJ Daniel to talk about their experience as writers. Great. Let's get into this discussion. <laughs> so first, let's talk a bit about those pieces that you just read. What inspired each of you to write your respective pieces? Ooh, well, <laughs> I feel like for me, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, my bubby died. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I guess I was just trying to find a way to, to write about 
my grief around her her passing and um then my aunt found this this dildo <laughs> and it kind of felt like this like object of divination like it felt like um this um perfect way to talk about who she was and and sort of the ways in which um she very much like filled a grandmother role in my life but also was her her own person um so yeah <laughs> and for me, so as I mentioned, the, the piece was published on Fangraphs, which is the baseball analytics site that I wrote for for quite a bit. Um, and when you're writing in that kind of setting, it's just like a constant grasping for ideas because I was supposed to write two articles a week, which I never got anywhere close to doing. I was not good at that. <laughs> but... It was spring, so it was time for spring training, which is when all the baseball teams get together in either half of them are in Florida and half of them are in Arizona because it's nice and warm and sunny. And it's interesting because it's in these small stadiums and there are all these like chill, laid back elderly people and kids there because the tickets are cheap. Um, And you have these kind of older established players playing on the field with way, way, way younger players who have never appeared in the major leagues who are kind of grappling for a spot on the team. Or some of them are just there to get experience and there's not even really any possibility, one would think, that they would get on the team. And so in 2021, uh, one of the great players of the recent era, Albert Pujols, it seemed like he was on the verge of the end of his career because it was the final year of his contract. He had had some injuries. He was in his late 30s, which is old for a baseball player, and just was had been struggling for several years. And so I thought it might be interesting in the springtime to go on YouTube and look back at people's grainy old videos that they had taken of him in his first spring training in 2001. Um, and from there... Often what my process was would I would watch weird YouTube videos. Mm. I would Google search a term and look at the Google trend and see what year it spiked and then see what was happening that year. And so I looked at this video from 2001. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so I went to the newspapers.com archive and read all this contemporary reporting about what happened, which I was not super aware of because it was in 2001. I was like three years old. And from there, I was like, wow, that's kind of a really compelling story. And so I thought I wanted to kind of get into the cyclical nature of kind of sports careers and also the return of seasons and sports, which I think is one of the things people kind of find comforting about sports is the way that they return kind of refreshed, but still the same every single year. Um, Yeah. And it turned out well. That was one of the pieces that actually was not agonizing for me to write, which most of them were really (laughs) agonizing for me to write. Yeah, I think it's it's really an effective piece and it, it makes sense that you did so much research for it. Like it sounds like yes. it, it was a really cool process of a piece to work on. Yeah, those were always my favorite kinds of pieces to write where I got to do a lot of research on it. And that's why I never met my two pieces a week quota <laughs> because I was looking at newspaper archives for eight <laughs> hours a day. Um, oh but I think I think it holds up. In terms of the structure of the piece, did you kind of like find that out organically or did you know like the ending has to be this like reveal? I kind of, I got there when I got there. Again, it's kind of a a function of the demands of being 
in a situation where you need to be churning out content Mm -hmm. that I never really planned anything out super strictly, which is, I love to plan stuff out. So, Mm -hmm. but I would, I would just have to be like, okay, I'm writing this now. Like I'm committing Mm -hmm. to writing this. And often I would be like researching and writing at the same time because I'd be trying to finish it fast enough. And so often what would happen is I would discover these serendipitous thematic connections mm. that then I could tie together at the end. And it, it was almost like mm-hmm. the best pieces to write are the ones where things are revealing themselves to you mm-hmm. as you're writing it to me. That's and true. that, totally. yeah, that felt like one of those pieces. Yeah, those moments are so magical. And I feel like, yeah, that's when you really know you've like found your way into the piece when something just like magically aligns like that. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like I felt that when you were reading it. Like there's it's funny that you were on such intense timelines because I feel like the the piece um has so much drama in it and it's so evocative and and in some ways like there's like a slowness in it. Yeah. For your piece, Jess, um, I know you wrote it in our creative nonfiction class that we took together, and that was like our first semester of our first year of the MFA. Is that one of the first creative nonfiction nonfiction pieces that you've written, or um, not exactly? Like I, so I did my um, bachelor's at Concordia in their creative writing program. Um, it was definitely like a, a less rigorous program, but um, I did take a creative nonfiction class there, and um, so I, I had I had written some other pieces, but I think a lot of them were were I don't know more like beleaguered with like my messy angsty feelings, <laughs> and uh, you know I I think there's still angst in in the piece that that I read, but I, I think there's like a certain groundedness to it that that makes it more digestible <laughs> for other people other than me to read. Um, so yeah, awesome. Um. And for RJ, what is like what does your writing's practice look like and what kind of themes do you explore generally in your writing these days? So these days it's been getting pretty dark and miserable. Uh, <laughs> I've found that as it was interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because one of my really close friends has abruptly decided that he's going to get really into baseball. Um, and so obviously I'm like, I have all these things for you to read and, and all of these videos for you to watch. Like, I'm so excited. But it had me thinking about when I kind of got really into baseball as a teenager um, and all the writing that I read. And there was actually kind of this really creative, generative space that was happening in one particular corner of the kind of like baseball blogging and writing internet. That is really what I kind of got a foothold in and then some people within that space were really really generous and like believed in me so much I was like 19 at the time and I'd just never really written anything for anybody else to read like I was so so neurotic about it and had no confidence whatsoever but being in that space really ended up giving me the confidence even though oftentimes I didn't believe it at the time but over time now I realize how important all of that was to me as a writer because now I feel like I don't have that at all anymore. Like I think I think I have it pr- probably less than most people, the sense of like disbelief in, in one's work. Mm. Whereas now I'm just excited to approach it every day. And so for me, like I like to take a, I, as I said, I love structure. So I like to structure my days as well. And so I have a big chunk of time every single day where I'm like, I know I'm gonna sit and write a thousand words. And because of that 
imposed structure. And then because of all the experience I had, like agonizing and being so horribly nervous about publishing all this stuff for people on the internet to read, like you have no idea who's reading it. It's 10,000 people. Mm -hmm. But I had these people around me who were like, what you are doing is great. Like you are great. Um, and that was all within this kind of baseball sphere. So now my writing practice is obviously more centered around fiction because I've been writing novels. But I think I really took a lot of the experience that I internalized from my time during doing baseball writing, even though I did, wasn't putting it into practice now. Now that I'm outside of that space, I'm able to put into practice everything that I learned. And it might just be a product of being a little older, too. But I love routine. Yeah, I think coming from a more deadline-driven writing field like like journalism or sports writing or that kind of thing does help in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and with research, too. Um, yeah, f for, for Jess, I was definitely wanting to talk to you about how you bring humor and joy to pieces that also often can be very dark. Um, and it's something that I really admire about your writing. And I'm sure people were like, laughing as they were listening to After Bobby. Um, yeah, how do you approach using humor and levity in your writing? Yeah, I think I think just like as in, in early, like like when I began writing for so many years, I was just writing about really like dark, depressing shit. And like, yeah, clearly it's not like I'm 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 not writing about those things anymore, but it, it, it just became so like like excessively <laughs> like um yeah, it, it just felt like so like like a dark slime <laughs> that I was just, you know, insisting on sort of like covering myself in every time I wrote. And I was just kind of like, I don't want to be in this space anymore. Um, and I think I think part of that, too, was, you know, and I, I think many of us see this when we're teaing classes is that, you know, as a young writer, you think you have to sort of. Um, write about the worst things that have happened to you or write about the worst things you can imagine happening to people. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that there's there's space for that, but I think there's, like, a lot of nuance there too. And I, I, I think most of us don't experience tragedy or grief um, as just those things. You know, I think there is just naturally a lot of levity in the way that people deal um, with hard emotions. Um and I do think it's it's also just like uh, a very Jewish thing too to just like laugh at your problems and be pretty self deprecating. Um, but yeah, I think I just wanted to like laugh more while I was writing, and so I was like, <laughs> I need to make some jokes or you know something. So yeah. Oh yeah, thank you for sharing that texture, like between like you know humor, joy, and like all of pain, really sh shone through in your writing. So thanks. Yeah. Um, and RJ, as a novelist and a second novelist coming out, yeah. what was your experience writing your first novel during COVID and how is the work and editing going? So my my first novel that I that I attempted to write, kind of a long, twisting origin story. I initially wrote it. I wrote 20 pages of something in 2016. So I was 18 at the time. Um, and it was just about someone who was my age at the time, so a teenager on a beach being sad. <laughs> and this, this I was like, this could be a wonderful young adult novel because I, as a teenager, was always like, young adult novels are not speaking to my experiences of being 
very mentally ill and having a lot of bad things happening. So I was very compelled to be like, I am writing a young adult novel that is real and true and represents people's experiences. Um, and then about once a year, I would return to the same 20 pages and be like, this doesn't work. And then I just throw them completely out and totally rewrite them. And so I continuously did this for a while. And every year, it was always running in the background current of my mind because I would read something or I'd watch a TV show and I'd be like, oh, that's in the novel. Like that's that I need to put that structure in the novel. Like it needs to be this kind of thing. And in 2020, um, I had this revelation because I was obviously incredibly miserable as most people I think were during 2020 and a lot of bad things were happening. I was really stressed out and I'm not a huge fan typically of horror, like traditional horror. Like I don't really like to see gore on the screen. Um, and I just don't find the genre super compelling most of the time, but I got very, very into Shirley Jackson um, and I was like, oh, like it really, and I got very, very into the book uh, In the Dream House by mm -hmm. Carmen Maria Machado. Yeah. And so that really opened my eyes to like, oh, this could be horror. Like this needs to be horror actually, um, to some extent. And so I had that kind of, that revelation really pushed me to rethink the novel. And once again, I rewrote it. Um, and then I kind of got spurred by this writing discord group I was in to try applying to the Tin House workshop. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time I had actually sat down and been like, okay, I'm writing a whole plan of what this novel's about. And so I wrote down the whole plan of what the novel's about. I think the draft that I sent in to the Tin House workshop was the worst draft <laughs> that existed ever of the novel. But doing that really got me somewhere because I did not get into the workshop, but I was like, okay, this can be a real thing. Then in the summer of 2021, so COVID is still happening. Um, everything's bad. It's bad times. I was really feeling awful. And I very abruptly quit baseball writing. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And then I had been, I got also got really obsessed with Nine Inch Nails during <laughs> the pandemic. And I kept listening as I was struggling to write my baseball articles to this podcast interview with Trent Reznor that he did in 2021, where he was talking about how he made his first album when he was a janitor at this music studio. And he would work all day there in exchange for getting to use their equipment for free. And so he would just work all night for like months and months on his first album because he was like, I'm 23 years old and this is all I want to do. And I have to let myself put everything into this because if I don't, then I'm never going to know. Like, I'm if this doesn't work, if I put everything in, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I have to know. And so I really took that to heart. And I was like, all I've wanted to do my whole life was write novels. I have to write it now in this month that I had between quitting my job and starting the MFA. I was like, if I don't do it now, if I don't put everything into this, then I'm never going to know. And so I just sat down and wrote for eight hours every single day. I had a very regimented schedule. And I was living with my partner's parents at the time and my partner at their house in the middle of a forest on an island. And everyone, no, I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. So everyone was like, hey, how's baseball today? I was like, good. And then I'd be like furiously typing <laughs> away. Um, and, then, and then I finished it and it felt wild. Um, <laughs> And I felt like all of the experience that I had had during COVID of being so isolated and so miserable needed to happen to make the novel because it was it had always been about isolation mm. um, and just horror and being alone and trying not to be alone anymore. 
And because of that, it just felt like everything had fallen into place and I knew I had put everything I could into writing it. And then I ended up selling it really fast. So it just felt like one of those things. I don't really believe in like manifestation or anything like that, but it was just one of those things where I knew I had put everything into it and it seemed like I got that energy back when I tried to put it out. And so to very long answer to your question, I had a horrible time during COVID. I did not feel good about writing, but I think that the novel that came out of that bad experience was the novel that I needed to be. Wow. That's, yeah, that's yeah. so inspiring to hear. <laughs> the revisions. How did you, like, keep going with every revision? I just, I felt, like, so connected to this person who the book was about, like, the main character. Mm. And I I don't know. I just really felt connected to the story. And I, it's not autofiction or anything like that. But I just felt like, oh, this is what I need to do and and even when I had kind of given up on it during the points where I was super super stressed freelancing and doing baseball writing and that and I was in undergrad at the same time so that was I was so so busy and just having such a bad time but this person remained through all that in the back of my head and so I almost felt like I owed it to them to then put everything I had into making this novel real because they had always been with me uh, even when I had kind of ignored them, they were still there in my head, mm. like rising up in certain moments mm. of inspiration. Wow. wow. That's amazing. That is kind of the advice I've I've gotten when I've talked to people about sort of like, when do you know that something is a novel? Is like when it, when it's about that, that character and like that character's story and having to tell it, mm. you know, if you're writing a short story or something and then you, you feel like you're not done with that character. And Jess, I wanted to ask you about, I know your thesis has kind of, I think, evolved to include a lot of graphic forms yes. in it. And I mean, I love, I love seeing like on your Instagram, your, your panels and everything. I'd love to hear more about how, like, what draws you to graphic forms and how you've kind of incorporated it in your practice. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess... I, coming into the program, was already becoming more interested in, like, illustration, not necessarily comics, but I had, like, illustrated um, this zine called Schmutz that I had made, and I, I had such a fun time doing it and was like, oh, I think I can, like, I have some skill, I have some talent at this, and, and it's fun, and I, I became sort of, like, really obsessed with, like, the aesthetic of, like, 1920s and 30s, like, Yiddish theater posters and that kind of, like, era and Jewish uh, woodcuts and lino cuts and, and, and paper cutting as well, and so I kind of was like, oh, like this is really fun and I, I want to keep on doing this essentially. And it was in some ways also a good distraction from um, the writing projects I was doing that I was frustrated with. Um, but then I took Sarah's class and Sarah's just such an incredible, Sarah Levitt uh, is such an incredible teacher. And um, I just knew that I, I wanted her to be my thesis supervisor, not only because she's an incredible teacher, but also she's queer and Jewish, which is like my audience for, um, you know, most of the things that I write. And um, I kind of thought, you know, I mean, people talked about like getting really burnt out with their their theses, theses, I don't know, I should know. Um, but 
I was like, what if I do something that I've like never really done before? And then I kind of can't get bored with it. Like I'm going to get really frustrated with it, which is 100% true. I feel completely overwhelmed, but I'm not going to be bored. Um, So that was one reason. And um, lately with my project, which also happens to be about my my bubby, I'm I'm drawing her um, a lot and I'm drawing her naked and I'm drawing her as um, a dead person and there's something that feels powerful and also once again scary about um, drawing somebody who has passed away over and over and over again and I I do feel like I'm summoning her (laughs) in some kind of way Um, and I've said I think you guys have all heard me talk about wanting to be haunted by her and it still hasn't happened and so maybe this is maybe I'm haunting her you know Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah I think yeah, I think there's something about the embodiedness of, of graphic forms that speaks to um, the stuff that I'm, I'm constantly thinking about. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. No, like the graphic forms aspect really does add an extra layer to you know, all the writing that you're doing as well. So, Yeah, thanks. I know. I felt, I felt like this connection when we were both in, in CNF in first semester and we both had, I think, both our grandparents passed away during COVID and we were both writing about it uh, in that class and then in poetry. And like, I I also feel kind of obsessed with my grandma now. And I just like, yeah, keep revisiting her in like every genre in all the forms. I like just went to Singapore to like, just ask everyone like, (laughs) what was she like? And it's, yeah, I love that idea of we're haunting them. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm like, I'm like, she's definitely passed on and I'm disturbing her peace. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, for both of you, do you have any like rituals or traditions that you do in order to write? So like, I don't know, grab a coffee or something, regimented schedule. Oh, don't even, don't even mention coffee. <laughs> I am way over caffeinated and I have been since I was like 14 years old. <laughs> so I definitely have to have coffee if I'm writing. But mainly the main thing for me is just setting out that time of the day where I know that's the only thing I'm going to do and I'm not going to do anything else. And most of the time I like to go out to do it, um, to go sit somewhere like at a coffee shop or sometimes just around UBC because I'm so often in my novels writing about really heavy stuff and kind of drawing from deeper, darker parts of my psyche that I don't necessarily want to have with me all the time, especially now that I feel like I'm not trying to claw my way out of some kind of hole. Like, I feel like I am out of the hole, but artistically it is satisfying to return to the hole, and I would rather not bring the hole into my home. (laughs) (laughs) Be haunted by the hole. Yeah, yeah, I feel like, oh God, I I feel like in so many ways I'm the opposite of you in terms of my writing (laughs) practice. Like, I have no routine. I'm trying to have some discipline, um, but mostly the way that I write is in, like, bursts when I'm obsessed with something, and it's, it's like, I can sort of, like, you know, um, like, rally uh, in that way, but I have no consistent (laughs) routine. But I'm with you in terms of, like, I'm a really restless person, and in many ways I'm like, why did I choose to be a writer? Because I, like, I need to move around 
around and I like need to talk to people. And so often when I write, I also will go to a, a cafe because um, there's something really comforting about like the, the sort of like white noise that people make um, around me. And yeah, definitely coffee, all the coffee, all the time, treats, beers, all of the things. <laughs> it's interesting what you just said about writing so much when you're obsessed with something and carrying that energy, because that is absolutely how I used to work. Yeah. Most of the stuff that I wrote would be written in truly unhinged, <laughs> yes. caffeine-fueled bursts of, <laughs> I need to write this right now, and it doesn't matter if I'm going to stay up until five in the morning writing it. <laughs> and this was a big part of why I was never meeting my content production goals, right. was because I would only write in these unhinged bursts when I was really obsessed with some topic. But I think writing the novel broke my brain because I can't work like that anymore. I can only work <laughs> within my little structure that I set out. Ugh. So it's it's interesting. It's interesting how that can change because I for sure was like, I will never change. <laughs> this is how my brain works. And this is how it's got to happen, even though it takes so much out of me. <laughs> um, but it did change. And I, I don't exactly know why. You're giving me hope, RJ. Like, thank you for that. <laughs> I remember, RJ, when I was working on the first draft of my thesis, and I, like, really had to get it done. Like, I had, like, a week to finish it or something. And you gave me the advice about, yeah, writing every day, but stopping while you're still really, like, wanting to keep going. Ooh, yes. Like, when you're still excited about the next thing that's coming. That, I mean, I can't. <laughs> I've, I've been trying to do that. I can't say I've like perfectly mm -hmm. achieved it, but I find that really helpful. Cause, yeah, it, rather than just keeping going and writing through the entire night or something, because then you can bring that energy the next day. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, that was really, that that piece of advice, I read it somewhere and I really wish I could remember who it was. It might have been Zadie Smith, but I'm not sure. Um, that was really critical for when I was writing the the first novel because I was writing so much every day and I knew I would have to get up and do it for so long again the next day if mm -hmm. I was going to complete it in the time I wanted to that I knew that if I wrote to a point where I was like wow I'm satisfied I got it out of me today I would not be able to get up the next day and write for another eight hours wow. so I really made sure that every time I stopped I was making myself stop at a place where I was so excited about what was going to come next. And all I wanted to do was sit there and keep writing it. Um, and yeah, it was really helpful. I think that's probably the single most helpful writing tip I've ever received or read anywhere in my life, which is saying a lot because people are full of unsolicited writing advice. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. Oh, I love that. I was wondering, I, we're all in the, in the MFA creative writing program here at UBC. I was wondering if there is... I don't know, a most surprising thing that you've learned about yourself as a writer mm -hmm. in the in the program? Or I don't know, just something you've learned about oh, yourself? Oh, man. Um, hmm. Well, yeah, I guess before the MFA, um, I, yeah, like had, I only really had the deadlines that I was making for myself. So if I wanted to submit to a magazine, um, or, you know, just, just wanted to finish something in general. And so I, I actually would normally take uh, to write a short story like at least three months. And I've discovered I can do that in three days. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I guess this is going to be kind of a, a lesser writing-related discovery that I made. But, you know, in undergrad, 
Um, I did undergrad in creative writing at UBC, and I was, you know, I had a lot of stuff going on, but I, w- I had all these, like, kind of hopes of finding a writing community or whatever, and I just didn't. Like, it didn't happen. I was like, I'm so weird and unknowable, <laughs> and I'm never going to connect with anybody about writing ever, because my my really good friends that I have in my life are not writers at all. <laughs> and so I found myself really wishing I had somebody to talk about it with, but there was nobody. There was nobody out there for me. <laughs> um, and so one of my goals, my main goals for myself <laughs> in entering the MFA was to make friends, um, which which I have found, like especially after COVID, spending so much time mostly alone or like pretty much only interacting with my partner and then our friends on Zoom on a daily basis, I was like, there's no way I remember how to talk to people. (laughs) Like I'm going to be acting so bizarre, which I feel like I was kind of initially, (laughs) but but then it, it, it all worked out. Like I found myself actually being like so engaged in other people's work and finding that other people were interested in my work and it was much easier it ended up being to to talk to people about writing and connect with people and make different kinds of friendships than I had anticipated and so that was a pleasant surprise because I I had anticipated it being much more difficult to achieve my goal of making at least one friend <laughs> oh you've made so many so friends, many. <laughs> oh, your friends. Yeah. <laughs> Your goals are so sweet. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> um, and in terms of like, I know, RG, you were saying you're listening to a podcast when you're writing some of the baseball articles. Are there any specific, you know, music that you usually tend to go towards? Like, do you listen to, for instance, sometimes I do this, when I'm writing really epic scenes, I like find epic anime music and I like, yeah. you know, search it up and I'm like, I got to fit the mood. I got to fit the mood. <laughs> I'm wondering how you guys kind of, you know, approach that writing or editing process. Yeah, I love that. I, I listen to a lot of instrumental music. Mm. Um, so I, I lately I've been listening to um, Nora Brown, who is this incredible bluegrass musician. Um, she also sings in some of her songs, but a lot of it is just like, you know, plucking the, the, the strings. Um, and she's, yeah, she's like 15 years old or something. It's it's wild. Um, but then I also was listening to Prince's album, his posthumous album, uh, Piano and a Microphone. And then my other go-to is uh, Miriam Sege. I'm missing one part of her name, but she um, has this amazing, like, piano album. Yeah. So the the podcast, interestingly, was more so, I think, distracting me from writing than doing anything else. <laughs> I think it, it ended up compelling me to write something, so that was good. Mm. But I'm a very one-track mind kind of person, and so I think t- usually if I try to listen to anything, if I listen to a podcast, if I listen to music, the thing I'm hearing is going to be all that's in my brain. Mm. So I definitely tend to be kind of a, a near silence or ambient noise coffee shop noise kind Mm -hmm. of writing person and that's that's part of why I like to leave my home to go write um because if I'm at home I'm going to be too tempted to talk Mm -hmm. to my roommate and my partner and my cats (laughs) and be like hello what are you doing over there and so it's it's not the best writing mindset I feel so yeah definitely silence as as close to silence as I can get and you're also a very musical person RJ and you like like well I would say that I'm musical too but I don't I don't have like the the kind of 
theory and like instrument background that when I listen to like instrumental music, I can't help but notice like the choices that are being made and that kind of thing. Whereas I know you said that you like cannot stop yourself from hearing and like analyzing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. Like there's no part of my brain that's going to be able to shut off and listen to music. I'll just be like, ooh, that production choice or like that chord change. So interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And then I will just not do any writing whatsoever. I also wanted to ask uh, if you have any writing inspirations or writers or media that you're excited about right now. I don't know, basically recommendations for our listeners. Mm -hmm. I'll go ahead. I was just talking. This is this is just because it's fresh in my mind right now. I was just talking to Phoebe Blanding, who was in the MFA program, who drove me here. Thank you, Phoebe. Um, <laughs> I was just telling her about I had just gone to see uh, the Banshees of Inisherin. Yes. Um, wonderful, wonderful movie. So I am a long-standing Martin McDonough enjoyer but with qualifications because Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed his theater work like a lot of his earlier theater work and how I was introduced to his work was my best friend in high school was a huge 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 fan of In Bruges his first movie which is a fantastic movie like it's so so funny Um, and so we loved that movie but then his next two movies that he made were not good and it was so sad I was like (laughs) Martin you have you have it in you to make a great movie and Banshees of Inisherin is actually a great movie and I think might be better than In Bruges because it has the combination of his humor and the way he traps characters in situations and the way he loves language and the ways that language can repeat itself and loop to obscure meaning um, mm. and separate people from each other. It has all of those qualities which made in Bruges so funny, um, but it has this really complicated and painful emotional core in the center that I think is more reminiscent of his theater work than... Um, his movies have been. And so we just saw it, me and my partner, the other day, and we're probably going to go see it again because it was really, really good. Um, So that's just what I've been thinking about the last two days. Yeah, that is... I just watched that film during the holidays, and wow, yes, it was so amazing. I agree with everything you said, and I cannot be more articulate than that. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like... Yesterday, I was talking to you, Sophia, about this podcast, History is Gay, and I I think it's an amazing podcast because it talks a lot about um, queer queer people of the past, um, queer ancestors, and, um, you know, kind of unearths the history that has, like, been obscured purposely uh, from us and kind of speaks to um, or resists this myth that sort of um, the reality that we live in right now is is progress. Um, and so mm-hmm. it does a lot of sort of breaking down the past and, um, yeah, like just going into different ways that uh, – uh, societies conceived of sexuality and gender and it's super fascinating and really inspiring and I think for me also has been inspiring in terms of like finding um, people that I wanted to write about or, or imagine what their lives were like so I, I would recommend that. Oh, thank you for your recommendations. Well thank you both so much. It was so great to talk to you today. I, I always love hearing more about people in the program and what they're writing but yeah. especially you all. 
such inspiration, <laughs> like just even from both of you talking, like from RJ, like the revision process, like, you know, oh all God, that, yes. the structure makes me want to restructure my life a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so thank you. I mean, if you want to do it, do it. <laughs> do it. Do it. Do <laughs> it. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening and make sure to check out our website at prismmagazine.ca. We've been your hosts, Vivian Lee and Sophia Osborne. Join us next time for more readings and conversations with inspiring writers. Thank you.